Hi, this is John Hand, and this Cinema Spotlight is dedicated to a very controversial film from 1980, William Friedkin's Cruising. How would you like to disappear? Disappear? Go undercover. You know this man? Who's here? These victims are all the same physical type. What about him, Skip? Late 20s, 140, 150 pounds. Dark hair, dark eyes. Have you ever seen him before? I want to send you out there to see if you can attract this guy. How, where? A New York City detective in search of a killer is about to disappear into the night. Is it dangerous? I can't talk about it. How do you know you're gonna end up the same person when it's over? An odyssey to the edge of city life. Bartenders are starting to give me some information. There's this uh, name keeps popping up all the time. There he is. The one with the hat. Is that the one that followed you? Yeah. Why didn't you go with him? I don't know. I think you should check him. If you want to play, I'll play with you. He's the wrong guy. Prince don't match. What he sees. Who's here? What he feels. I don't think I can do the job, Captain. I don't think I can handle it. I'm here. There's just stuff going down. I don't think I can. I can deal with it. Yes! Yes! What he experiences. What he discovers will change his life forever. Al Pacino. Who's here? I'm here. You're here. Cruising. The story of cruising takes place in the late 70s, early 80s in New York in the summer in the gay leather bar scene of the bowels of New York. Um, clubs like uh, the Ramrod and the Hellfire Club and the Cockpit. Uh, we're introduced to, to all of these, these very subterranean layers at the beginning of this film. Uh, it's the gay leather scene of the late 70s and early 80s where all of these uh, people dressed up like something out of uh, the Gimp in Pulp Fiction amble around very slowly and and uh, and uh, you know very determinately and and uh, in, in these clubs there's all this crazy punk music you know that's that's blasting and blaring as people are doing poppers and there's all this kind of sweaty things going on in the darkness in these these awful clubs where all these men are quote-unquote cruising which is in this film you know walking very slowly and trying to find a, a date for the night basically and very quickly in cruising we're introduced to the idea that there is a killer there is a serial killer who is stalking its prey in these clubs and is uh and is killing uh, these uh, gay men in this leather bar scene. The first scene of the film, we, we see this happen. We see this uh, this this killer who is um, unnamed. We 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 view him from really behind. A few, a few uh, we have a few glimpses of his face, but we see as he's uh, at a bar with a another young man who uh, is is dressed in this really odd zip-up flight suit thing and they have this weird discussion about uh, smoking because the killer is smoking and 
and he says, you know, try some other type of stimulation like a, 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 a feather over the nape of your neck. Just this really inane conversation. And they very quickly, uh, you know, go back to this uh, really run-down flea-bit hotel where they have uh, a liaison for the night. They have sex. And then uh, the, the guy in the flight suit that the killer picks up uh, ends up uh, being hogtied on a bed uh, face down, and the killer is like, uh, you made me do this, you made me do this, and he stabs him in the back multiple times. A, a very, very, very creepy scene. And we're also introduced within these first couple scenes to the idea that, that there is a, that this killer, as well as picking up gay men and, and killing them, he's also uh, cutting up their bodies and leaving little remnants of them in the Hudson River. Uh, there's a boat, and a boat captain, uh, you know, is, is going on in the boat, and he, and he finds that the, there are these body parts that are just floating up in the river. And we see a, uh, a policeman, and we see that he has this, uh, this whole collection of body parts that they, they don't even, you know, some of them don't even have a, a person associated with them. They're just in a tray in the morgue. They're just shoved into this lonely little tray in the morgue. They don't even know who these people are. So the police are under a lot of pressure to solve these crimes, to solve these murders, to find the gay serial killer. In particular, Captain Edelstein, played by Paul Servino, feels a lot of this pressure. And what he does is he finds a, a young rookie, a uh, young guy on the force, Steve Burns, played by Al Pacino. And the thing is that Al Pacino, uh, Steve Burns' character, has this permed hair, he has his dark hair, and he resembles one of the killers, uh, one of the killer's victims, rather. So Edelstein, in this in this very stark scene, asked, asked uh, uh, Al Pacino if he's ever had his cock sucked, if he's ever, you know, uh, had gay sex, if he's ever done this, ever done that. And... Uh, you know, Al Pacino is just like stunned. He's like, "Oh no!" You know, it's, it's a very odd scene because it's 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 just so, it's such a shocking scene as to see this these Paul Servino and and Al Pacino talking in such a frank manner. But Al Pacino agrees to it because Paul Servino Edelstein's like, you know, if you do this, you're going to make detective. You're going to get your your badge. You're going to get your golden shield. You know, it's going to be. You're going to be in with us if you go and and um, go undercover in this gay leather scene and try to find this killer for us. So Burns, Al Pacino, uh, who we're we're led to believe is a rather normal guy. He has this nice girlfriend, played by Karen Allen, who she who he loves and she loves him and. It's a it's a big kind of love relationship. He goes undercover in the gay leather scene. They set him up in an apartment uh, next to a really nice gay playwright, uh, wannabe playwright, uh, played by Darren Scardino. Uh, Ted Bailey is his character's name. And, you know, Ted. And, and there's all this relationship with Ted and, and getting to know him. And, you know, very slowly... Uh, Al Pacino is going to the gay leather bars, you know, learning the whole scene, you know, learning the people and getting into the, the weird, you know, rituals of this, of this whole subculture, this whole gay leather subculture, which is full of pain and punishment and, and poppers and, and dancing. And while this is going on, the the, the killing is still continuing, uh, and in very odd ways. The the kill the 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 first murder, as I said, starts with a, a pickup at one of these bars. The second murder is in the brambles in the woods, where actually the first the first killer, the first person we see who is obviously the 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 initial killer, uh, is. You know, look at you know trolling for somebody, and he gets murdered in in the second scene. So it's just really kind of weird. And then there's this clothing designer who is um, you know by day he's designing all these uh, fancy clothes, and he's on 
you know, he's in one of these big stores, and he's like, oh, I'm going to to the uh, to the island for the uh, weekend. You know, don't disturb me. But you know where he's going at, at night. He's 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 prowling in his convertible. Uh, he's cruising in his convertible. And he finds himself at one of these, uh, you know, gay X-rated arcades, I guess, where, you know, people would go in and, and for, uh, you know, 25 cents or 50 cents, you know, they'd go into this darkened room and, and watch some, uh, you know, X-rated porno loops. And while this was happening, things would happen inside this darkened room. And instead, what happens to him is uh, he gets knifed for his uh, troubles as he, as he you know... Um, attempts to go down on the serial killer um and the serial killer then puts these bloodied we see his him putting these bloodied uh coins into the uh x-rated arcade loop inside so he can keep the uh arcade loop going so he can so he can leave but they actually find a fingerprint on these bloodied coins so al pacino is still kind of learning the ropes, he's he's uh, getting to know the people, he's getting to know the places, there's this very uh, very stark scene where he actually goes into the store and he sees all these handkerchiefs and uh, he's like, what are all these handkerchiefs for? And the guy behind the counter, the store clerk, played by Powers Booth in a little cameo, uh, describes to Steve Burns, you know, what all these handkerchiefs were, were for and actually based on something that was really going on there in the uh, New York gay scene of the late 70s and early 80s, there was this handkerchief code where you would you would wear a handkerchief in your back uh, left pocket or back right pocket, and it would, you were either a dominant or submissive of a particular type of uh, sex act. And there were like, you know, like dozens and dozens of different shades and colors of these handkerchiefs. And uh, Al Pacino, in this very shocking scene, is uh, told by Powers Booth what primarily some of these handkerchiefs mean. Excuse me. Can I ask you about these? What about them? What are they for? A light blue hank in your left back pocket means you want a blowjob. Right pocket means you give one. The green one left side says you're a hustler. Right side, you're a buyer. Yellow one, left side, means you give golden shower. Right side, you receive. Red one, means see anything you want. Uh, I'm going to go home and think about it. I'm sure you'll make the right choice. Running throughout this, there's this whole subplot of these uh, two uh, policemen who are trolling around the uh, the the gay leather area, this meatpacking district area, and we see them at the beginning of the film, uh, and they're just kind of like, oh, look at these, look at these guys. So they see these guys, you know, ambling around the street. You know, you used to you used to be play, you used to be able to play stickball in these streets. Now look at these guys. You know, two two policemen, kind of uh, uh, really slimy looking uh, <laughs> bad cops, played by. Wonderfully played by uh, excellent character actors Joe Spinell and Mike Starr. Joe Spinell, of course, uh, of Maniac, and Mike Starr um, of so many, so many films like Ed Wood. Uh, take your pick. Uh, so these these guys go around and they're harassing um, the uh, the uh, the young gay people there young gay guys, and, you know, pulling them into their cop cars and having them perform sex acts and uh, just doing all kinds of weird things. And they're also red herrings, of course, because this this film is, of course, supposed to be a murder mystery. So, again, they, they provide another little red herring boost. Okay, so the story goes on, and Al Pacino finds this one gay guy who he thinks could be the killer, possibly. He has this really, this guy with this really crazy, erratic personality. And uh, we uh, find out that this guy works uh, at a steak restaurant where he has access to these steak knives, which could be the killer's weapon. And they set up a sting at a, another flea bit hotel where, uh, in an early role, uh, Ed O'Neill and Sonny Grosso, who was uh, 
technical advisor in this film, and of course, obviously from the French Connection, uh, perform a sting, and they they rush in, and uh, Al Pacino's like hogtied on the on the bed. He's, he's naked, and uh, <laughs> but it turns out the guy isn't the killer, and this really shakes up Al Pacino that he actually um, fingered a guy who was just completely just a scared gay guy, not the killer at all. And Edelstein's kind of like, hey, you know, we're deep into this. My superiors are going to, they got my ass. We got to find this killer. And so by a process of deduction, a very convenient process of deduction, Al Pacino finds this musical student who was, because one of the, one of the murder victims was a, was a professor. And he finds this uh, music student who it who very well could be the killer, and uh, the finale of the film takes place where it's just it becomes this the the end of the film becomes this kind of cat and mouse chase between um, Steve Burns, Al Pacino, and this music uh, this music student played by Richard Cox, a great actor from The Vindicator actually, and other great films. Uh, great kind of villainous kind of personality that Richard Cox has. And Al Pacino breaks into his apartment. He finds letters that he's written to his father, like dozens and dozens and dozens of letters that he's written to his father. And there begins to develop a motive of why this guy would kill gay men, because he, we, we actually see Richard Cox in this very strange scene talk to his father, and his father is like, you know what you have to do, and, and uh, you know, it's a very odd, strange dialogue. So the end of the film takes place at night as Al Pacino lures Richard Cox uh, to this park, and they have this showdown where... Uh, you know, Al Pacino goes, oh, I want to, uh, you know, does all this gay slang. At this, by this point, he's all down and hips or lips and <laughs> all of this crazy slang. And he knows the, the lingo, he's talking shop. And uh, they eventually, um, there's this confrontation. They pin the murders on him. Uh, they pin the murders on this Richard Cox character. Um, but the film ends in this very strange, vague way with... Um, Al Pacino, after all this this stuff has gone down, kind of decompressing at his house, at his apartment, rather, with Karen Allen. Karen Allen uh, starts trying on his uh, his leather gear, his hat, and his glasses, you know, just for the fun of it, because he just leaves it, you know, because he, he, he goes into the next room and kind of plop down. He's just dog-tired. And um, then we see that night that Ted Bailey... His his neighbor was violently murdered, and who do we have covering the Ted Bailey murder scene? But Joe Spinell, one of the corrupt cops. So cruising, uh, a very unusual film, a very effective film. The film has a really long history. It has a very convoluted production history, and it's a very controversial film. Um, the film began with a book that was written by Gerald Walker. Gerald Walker was a New York Times editor, and uh, as far as I know, he only wrote this one book, Cruising. And it's it's basically what the film's about. It's about a gay serial killer in this leather bar scene, and there's an undercover cop who is, you know, infiltrating that. And so... He based Cruising, actually, on a, on a series of real unsolved murders, which took place uh, in New York. Actually, the murders were, I believe, similar to this, um, to what happened in the film, where these murder victims were actually cut up into pieces, and they found pieces of them uh, in, in the river. So this, this book was, in some ways, a hot property, and it was a well-known property, and a lot of directors tried to get it, tried to attach themselves to it. At one point, Brian De Palma wanted to do this film, wanted to direct it. At one point, um, in the late 70s, uh, Steven Spielberg wanted to do this film. I think this is going to be his project after 
1941 or uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it was going to be this film, which is really a shocker to just to to have seen this material done by a uh, Steven Spielberg would have been really really different. But eventually, William Friedkin directed the film. I think he was originally approached by his uh, French Connection producer Phil D'Antoni about uh, uh, about directing this film earlier, like in the earlier 70s, and he declined to do it. And then I think a couple things happened, because first of all, he learned of the story of um, Randy Jurgensen, who was an actual policeman. He's actually in um, Cruising. He plays one of the characters. He's one of the mainstays in uh, some early films by Bill Lustig. He's at the end of Maniac. He's in Vigilante. Uh, he was, you know, a Golden Shield police advisor at that point. Randy Jurgens himself actually went undercover in the gay leather scene to um, to try to find these two cops, which they called Salt and Pepper, because there was one black cop and one white cop. Uh, they, they were so-called cops because they were actually impersonating policemen. What they would do is they would go and, and they would find these gay guys uh, who were, you know, doing their thing in, in alleys and everything, and they'd shake them down for money. And the the police department was very concerned about these guys who were impersonating policemen uh, or who were real policemen or, or whatever. So they sent Randy Jerkinson <laughs> undercover, and he had to, like, dress uh, like this in his gay leather attire and, and do this. And, and uh, William Freakin heard the story. And then he heard the story of Paul Bateson, who was in The Exorcist. And Paul Bateson is in, is in, you see him in The Exorcist, he's the radiology assistant who, um, I believe he has the mustache, and he uh, helps, um, at one point you see uh, Reagan get uh, some radiological uh, exam, and Paul Bateson is actually in the film, and he was, ac- he was an actual radiology assistant, because Friedkin used real people in that film, and he was actually convicted of a murder of his, of a uh, of of a of a gay man uh, apparently his lover and he apparently he i don't think he directly confessed but i think he said he he he, he dropped a lot of hints that he was actually also the the killer the serial killer of these uh and which were you know which was uh, part of these these unsolved gay murders, which the, the the book Cruising was based on. And William Friedkin actually interviewed Paul Bateson when he was uh, in prison for uh, this one murder, which he was convicted of. And he kept dropping a lot of hints that he was actually involved in these other unsolved gay crimes. So Friedkin kind of made, put this film together out of three sources. He put it together out of the Gerald Walker cruising book. Uh, he put it together off of, based on the real-life experiences of Randy Jurgensen going un- undercover to find these policemen, and also of Paul Bateson, the uh, the killer, the real-life killer, who could have had something to do with these uh, unsolved gay murders, uh, which the book is actually based on. So the film began production in 1979 in New York, on location, just the way, the only way William Friedkin would have it, and it was a very troubled production, because uh, early on, there were, this was the era of gay liberation, Uh, there were a lot of angry voices, a lot of uh, vocal um, gay advocates, and they found, and and early on, a lot of people were very skeptical of this cruising film. Because they'd read the book, and which were, was was published years before, and uh, you see, there's there's an interview with Gerald Walker, which you can find online, where you know pe- people were just very against this book. They they found it the book from from what I've read, from what I've looked through. I haven't read the whole thing, but it's it's very it's full of all these racial stereotypes. It's very cliched, and it could be seen as very it could cast a negative light toward the gay community in the sense that in the way that these these men are, are described in this film the whole the way the whole gay leather scene is described in this film which is is very you know primal and 
and uh, in some cases, ugly. So gay advocates actually got a uh, an early draft of the script. They read it, and from the beginning, there were protests. There were... Uh, there were people who were organized to disrupt the cruising shoot. Um, any kind of on-location shoot, exterior shoot, there would be like dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds really, not dozens, hundreds of protesters who they had to cordon off and, and they would throw bottles and, and, and stuff at the, at the actors. And it, it was just a zoo, it was a circus. And just completely crazy. Uh, the... Now, to research the film, this is funny, um, William Friedkin actually went into these gay leather bars. In particular, he went into the Hellfire Club, which was the main, uh, fil- the main uh, location for this film. Most of the gay leather scenes were shot in the, in the Hellfire Club, which is a cool club. Um, there were scenes from Basket Case that were shot in that club. Also, parts of Madonna's sex book were apparently... Photograph there, but uh, William Friedkin actually went to that club and he uh, dressed down and, and did a lot of research there into into what was what was going on in that scene. And a lot of the extras that he used in the club were just the the real people who went to that club. And he and he shot a lot of lot of really. Uh, you know, crazy footage of people, and and this club is a a crazy. If you when you see the film, you realize it's just a really crazy place. It's full of there's this one thing on the wall which is like a, an American flag, but it's it's but it's made of these um, lights that are flashing on and off, and and uh, there's these swings and and people who are oiling up and and fisting each other and. And William Friedkin always says that he shot this fisting scene where you could see this guy's fist inside this coming through, and you could see it in his stomach, and you know, and it was just all this kind of crazy footage, which caused all kinds of uh, censorship issues, where the film was originally passed uh, with an X rating, and it took him all kinds of uh, of uh, magical editing techniques to somehow get an R rating for this film. And to appease the protesters, he actually added a line at at the beginning of this film, a disclaimer at the beginning of this film, which reads as such. This film is not intended as an indictment of the homosexual world. It is set in one small segment of that world, which is not meant to be representative of the whole. So there you go. There you go. William Friedkin's let off the hook because it's just one small segment. <laughs> so my my thoughts on the film. Well, the film's supposed to be a murder mystery, you know, where you know, it's this it's this straightforward thing. Al Pacino, the the tagline is is often in the posters Al Pacino is cruising for a killer. And it's about this it's supposed to be about this killer in this in this gay leather scene, and Al Pacino's hunting after him. But the film, to me, feels more like a horror film. It feels to me more in league with less in league with like Friedkin's The French Connection, or Jade, or you know his or Live and Die in L.A. His his crime movies, and it feels to me more in league with like The Exorcist. It, it to me it feels like this weird kinship with the Exorcist. In fact, the, one of the posters for, for Cruising, or rather the uh, the cover art of the of the album Cruising, is this this picture of of this night shot, this black and white night shot of this this guy in the park. You know, this gay leather guy in the park. It could be one of the killers. It could be Al Pacino, and he's 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 like standing straight up and. You know, silhouetted, and it looks like a shot from Max Mosito and the the poster of The Exorcist. In fact, there's this, and the and the 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 title of the film "Cruising" is is in diagonal over the top of this album art poster in red, and it's just like whoa. Throughout this film, the the killer seems kind of like could almost it feels like he could almost be possessed. You know, he, he's um, 
well, first of all, a weird thing in the film is that oftentimes there are different there. There's obviously more than one killer in the film, but they all seem to have the same voice. They're all dubbed, but the same voice, just like a, it's like almost like like they're demonically possessed. You know, I mean, there are no overt, you know, fantastical paranormal elements in this film, but you just get this uncomfortable vibe that something. Uh, that there is this almost this demonic force that's pushing these killers forward, you know, this this group of killers because it's not just one. Because as I was saying earlier, this this initial killer of the initial murder is himself killed in the brambles. So, but these all these killers share the same voice because they're all dubbed. They they they're dubbed. They have <laughs> the same voice. And so it becomes this very strange experience where the, the audience is just very confused because, okay, this one guy killed him, they have the same voice. And this confusion is never really resolved at the end of the film. Almost like, as I said earlier, this is some kind of possession which follows people, you know, which infects people. And at the end scene, we're almost led to believe that maybe Steve Burns may be infected by this evil, you know, that maybe he will continue on. Because at the end scene we see, you know, Karen Allen, and we and we hear the chains, the the sound, the signature sounds of the killer, uh, echo into the night as we see another scene of a uh, of a of a guy walking into uh, one of these gay leather bars. So it's kind of unresolved. Also, the 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 entire film is dubbed because the exteriors with the uh, with the protesters they couldn't do any live production dialogue. They had to dub all of that stuff. But also at that point, William Friedkin was, you know, he spent, like, he was spending, like, literally shooting days, like, eight or nine hours, and then over, like, days and days and days. He would spend, like, 20 or 30 hours, like, filming insert shots of bacon, you know, on, on, on a stove or something, you know. And so he was a perfectionist, so he would. When you're a perfectionist, you want to go in and redub all your dialogue, get all your actors back in and re-record the dialogue so that everything just sounds exactly the way you want it. And this film has a really incredible sound mix. The same sound team who worked on Sorcerer and worked on The Exorcist worked on this film, and you hear the the chains the uh, echoey subterranean layer of these gay bars, you hear the night, you hear all of this stuff. You hear the incredible soundtrack of this film, which is very important, full of uh, all kinds of punk music, The Germs, it's their only soundtrack album they ever did, uh, John Hyatt, Flyboy, and Willie DeVille, who is probably the most recognizable part of the soundtrack, who does these tracks, it's so easy. Uh, and pulling my string, I believe, and uh, it's so easy is uh, is a signature track. It actually found itself into uh, Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, and uh, it is just this evil, strange-sounding track, removed from the context of being a punk track or being, a, you know, a, a, a song. It, it 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 seems to kind of embody the uh, the soul of this killer. That it's just so easy. To, to murder, to kill, you know, or, or to engage in whatever weird, violent fantasies he's engaging in. So, I mean, this, this soundtrack, again, really, again, pushes the film forward as this, you know, strange... And, all, and, all, and apart from all these uh, music tracks from The Germs and Willie DeVille and all these people, there's also a, a very strange score by Jack Nietzsche, the... the Famed composer who worked on One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, famed musician, also did the soundtrack for The Exorcist, did some of the tracks for The Exorcist, and he has this this very screechy, strange score full of all kinds of weird percussion and and all kinds of strange stuff, and it and it creeps up on you and and in this film in, in very weird places. So it's the actors in this film who who also really really make the film. Uh, we have as our lead character Al Pacino, who at this point it seems kind of lost in this film. He, he doesn't really he he doesn't really seem the driving element. He's he's a character that you know early on we 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 realize 
some, something's going on in, in the back of his mind that he's really maybe he's getting turned on by this experience of being in the gay leather scene we're not sure I mean this this whole experience is really affecting his core and he's really being shaken by what he's seeing in these clubs and if he's getting into it or or not there's this very weird scene where he's 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 been in this in these clubs for a while and he, and he spends the night with his girlfriend he he's he, he runs away and and but he and she and she, you know, is very seductive and loving, and and she, we see her kind of um, do the movie thing where she kind of uh, we are in bed together, and she kind of slithers out of frame toward the toward the bottom of of uh, of his body, and you know it's this kind of really loving scene, but we hear, as I said, the great soundtrack. We hear. In uh, in Steve Burns' mind, we hear the clubs and the whooping and the hooping and the hollering, and we realize that as Karen's doing whatever she's doing to uh, Steve Burns, he's he's imagining what these guys could be doing to him or something. <laughs> and the, so the subtext of this is just really uh, crazy. You know, as I said earlier, Mike Starr and Joe Spinell are just crazy. Apparently, in the long version of this film. Because apparently this film was like 140 minutes and it was really sliced apart, cut apart. They 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 have all these weird scenes where they're doing all this kind of weird sex stuff. Uh, these two corrupt cops. Uh, so so they're just great. And 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 Joe Spinell always keeps popping up in the film because he's supposed to be a red herring. He actually cruises, uh, you know, walks past seductively. He walks past uh, Al Pacino when he's in the Brambles. So. This guy Joe Spinell, and he's also in the clubs as well. We see him like as a as a greaser, and so it's kind of like, okay, is he the killer? Is he not? So that's really cool. Uh, Don Scardino, who was uh, the famous red-haired uh, actor, a ginger, uh, <laughs> he was in Squirm. Um, he did a lot of uh, theater. Uh, he uh, eventually became a theater director, television director, but then he became a theater director. He directed the first, uh, the premiere performance of uh, A Few Good Men for Aaron Sorkin. He's he's great in this film as Ted Bailey, as uh, Steve Burns' roommate, who kind of is, he kind of represents the uh, mainstream of gay culture. And, you know, he has this relationship, this tumultuous relationship. Steve Bailey has his relationship with um, an uh, early performance by James Remar as his roommate, who's supposed to be this ballerina, this dancer who's always leaving him. And and um, so Steve and uh, Ted Bailey are always down at the local ice cream shop, kind of, you know, you know, uh, at the local diner, kind of like hashing out like what's going on. And, and, you know, Steve's telling, you know, uh, or rather, uh, Ted Bailey's telling Steve about, you know, you ever go to the bathhouses, you know, and you could you, you check in and blow 20 guys in an hour, you know, and and uh, Steve's like, could you do that? And he's like, I, I don't know. I just, uh, you know, I, sometimes I feel like it, you know, I feel that the pressure could be going, and it's like, ugh, especially when you realize, you know, what, what came out of those bathhouses in that era, uh, which there really isn't the specter of uh, AIDS or whatever. At this point, but you kind of see it around the corner, and and uh, maybe some people could 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 see the the killer as the as the specter of uh, of uh, of HIV kind of coming up and and uh, assaulting these these people who are this this violent ragged subculture, ragged edge of the gay culture, this this gay leather subculture sub scene whatever. Because we're at the beginning, we're we're you know it was made very clear that this is not what's going on. This is not regular society. This is a crazy society, so we can just show it any way we want. <laughs> Paul Sorvino is great. Paul Sorvino, like, this this film was, like, shot in 79, released in 80. Like, Goodfellas is, like, in friggin' 88, 89, 90. He, doesn't, he, he didn't age in 10 years. He's just, he looks like Paul Sorvino, you know. Uh, Karen Allen is, in the film, a few scenes. She's some nice eye candy. Overall, really great performances, even by the the bit players, the authentic people who who frequent these clubs, who are captured forever on film. Uh, they're all great, and they're doing their thing in front of the cameras. 
<laughs> mustaches and leather chaps and all. <laughs> so that's a little shocking, a little disturbing. Now, as I said a couple times here, the film was very controversial uh, with gay rights groups as well as with the MPAA as far as ratings. And uh, William Friedkin had to cut this film down. Uh, his producer, Jerry Weintraub, was kind of full behind him in this controversial film. But he eventually really had to slice this film up. And the cut, which has survived for, which initially survived for the first, you know, 20 years of Cruising's life, was, uh, you know, uh, 20 years or so, was the cut version, the cut theatrical version. And then the rumblings began in 1999 and 2000, um, during the re-release of The Exorcist. Um, not the, uh, well, yes, the version you've never seen. Well, actually, they did, in the UK, they did a re-release of the original Exorcist, uh, the original version of The Exorcist, the original cut. And during that time period, you, you see in Sight and Sound and other magazines, a lot of people began asking William Friedkin, well, what about cruising? What about and, and William Friedkin was like, well, we've got all this extra footage, you know, I had to cut out a lot of stuff in cruising. I'd love to do a director's cut. And so the the wheels began to to move, and it took a few years. But then in 2007, it premiered at Cannes, a supposed cruising director's cut, where Friedkin had gone back, had added footage, had changed a lot of things. Now... A lot of the footage, a lot of the most controversial footage was the footage they shot in the Hellfire Club, in the Gay Leather Club. And it was these scenes of, as I said, semi-real sex. The film, um, there's some really controversial stuff going on in it uh, because each of these murders in the film is punctuated by... You see the killer, you know, stab, and there's, you know, the shots of him stabbing, but then it's intercut like subliminal edits... Uh, like what would, what he was trying to do with the Exorcist, with these, it's actually, and in in the final version, in the actual finished theatrical cut, there are actually frames of a gay porno, of actual penetration, and if you still frame these these scenes as the as you see these shots of these knives go into people, you'll actually see uh, something else going to some other person <laughs> in real life for real, and so the. You know, it, it, the um, the purpose of these cuts is kind of dubious. It's it's uh, we're not sure of what specific reason, but it is very intense and and weird. And the cut and these 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 frames survived the uh, the cuts because they're as I said they're subliminal. You can't even understand what's happening. You can't see it unless you do a frame by frame. But then once you do a frame by frame, you can. You know they're they're so-called subliminal, but they're very they're clearly visible. So they're just kind of masked by the way they're they're cut in the film. But once you see them, you you can clearly see them. They're, they're next viewing of the film. <laughs> so I mean, besides that, besides that really weird, crazy, explicit element, a lot, freaking cut out a lot of stuff, and a lot of that footage was lost. So with his director's cut, he reinstated what footage he could find of that stuff. And he made a lot of changes as far as, and controversial changes, as far as the color grading of the film. And oh, he also removed the uh, initial uh, disclaimer in the film that this is a subset of the gay cult. He removed that. And the film begins with this, uh, it originally didn't, began with no titles. And actually, for a, a 1979, 1980 film, this is kind of a brave film to begin with no titles. It's like Apocalypse Now or something. It begins with a, a, a big cruising title which scrolls across um, horizontally on the screen now in the director's cut. And he changed the, the, the color grading of the film, which is to say that now that most of the most of the scenes in the film are the same the the daytime scenes are the same, but these scenes in the gay leather bar at night have this blue cast to them now they're all this kind of blue color 
uh, cast in order to very clearly in order to kind of intensify the feeling that this is kind of this subterranean almost underwater experience with these with these people and these characters where instead of flesh tones they're just all these this blue they're all blue it's all this blue it's very heavily blue is what i'm trying to say and then there there comes a pivotal moment in these in this in these club scenes where you know Al Pacino's been kind of hanging back he's been kind of just you know talking to the bartender you know drinking some beers you know he's hanging out but sometimes he makes some social faux pas like he, he puts the handkerchief in the in the wrong pocket and he's like why are you wearing that and some gay guy comes over and thinks he's going to get a free rise like why you watch it why why you got that handkerchief man and so he makes some some gay social faux pas, <laughs> but overall he's scoring some points. He's doing some stuff. But then there becomes a break point where there becomes this this famous song by Willie Deville, "Heat of the Moment," which comes on and it starts blaring in the jukebox. And one of the gay guys is like, "Hey, lover, are you with someone?" He's like, "Yeah, well, aren't we all?" And they take him out into the and he and he gets lured out into the middle of the dance floor. And they st- and he starts uh, sucking on this rag that has you know whatever uh, chemical uh, <laughs> on it, and starts doing this dance, and and he starts dancing like this robot. It's like Al Pacino doing this robot dance, and it's heat of the moment, and all these sweaty gay guys are are dancing around and it's like all this it's like this weird primal jungle rhythm where you feel the Al Pacino character become begin to become in tune with what's going on in this club and and the and the music begins to blare and it's more intensity and and uh and it just becomes this great moment you know where it, it it's a pivotal moment where as i said he kind of goes from spectator to participant and it in the 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 director's cut version of this scene, I think it can even kind of intensifies. It's very controversial because some people don't like the changes he's made. First of all, the 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 these Hellfire Club scenes have all been this blue, intense color. But then, as Al Pacino starts sucking on this rag, doing the chemicals, there begins to be pops of color. We've, we see the, the color that's been subdued pop and almost like come to life, almost to like signal that this is a pivotal change, that like these skin colors of all these all these sweaty gay guys on the on the dance on the dance floor begin to pop and they begin to pop in the flesh and just just pops almost subliminal pops pops you know you wouldn't even r- realize you're seeing these pops maybe until you you watch it a couple times and then as al pacino's dancing there is this weird video effect that's been applied to his dancing where almost as if he's becoming under the influence of this drug and you see these these trails and he's doing all and and his his body becomes all blurry and he's He's doing all these motion, all these motion trails. You begin to see, and a lot of people didn't like this change. They found it to be to to look rather ridiculous. But from one perspective, yes, it does look rather ridiculous, and it's changed. From another perspective, in the original film, Al Pacino's dancing really looked ridiculous. I mean, he's just doing all this incredibly weird dancing. And it it looks ridiculous. And from one perspective, the video effect makes it look a little less ridiculous because you don't see it as much. It's a little more subdued. So I I think in that sense it works. Uh, another change is he and also Freakins does all these little tiny changes throughout the film. You know that the soundtrack is being remixed to uh, multi-channel to five point one, and it sounds just fantastic there's another scene where he like adds this like iris like it, it looks like in this 1920s film i i noticed one uh, critic of this uh, director's cut it looks like some kind of 1920s film where it just like this iris uh focuses in on steve burns at one point toward the end of the film and it just looks like it does look ridiculous but besides that one uh change which i dislike the director's cut is overall a really great valid cut of the film 
it's the only cut that's available on DVD, and it's it definitely is the one probably to watch at this point. If you're interested, you can find the original cut. It usually plays on IFC. It can play on IFC from time to time. Um, it's obviously the original cut was on VHS and the rather rare Laserdisc release for it, I believe. So there it is, cruising. Very controversial film. Uh, a very kind of scary film, uh, more in league, as I said, with the Freakins, uh, The Exorcist, than any kind of his procedural police dramas. But still, uh, a very rewardy film, a good film, and a, and a movie to really freak people out with, because it's this, you know, it's this mainstream-looking film. It's got Paul Servino and Karen Allen and Al Pacino in it. So, you know, you'll pull it, you pull your DVD off the shelf and like, hey, let's watch Cruising. And everybody's going, like, oh, okay, cruising. And then, you know, <laughs> and then, so it's Al Pacino. And then, and then you, and then people usually get to the Powers Booth scene where, you know, this hanky means you give a blowjob. This hanky means you want to get a blowjob. This in your water sports. And, and they're like, ah, this is an Al Pacino film. This is supposed to be a safe movie. So it is a good movie to freak people out with. Um, Probably more the the probably the coolest cult movie to freak people out with because it's like you know Al Pacino's the gateway into you know he's Scarface and he's in this gay leather scene so it's <laughs> it's a good gateway to freak people out so cruising a gateway drug a good thing to kind of freak people out and have them make them have a bad tr- bad cult movie trip <laughs> so there you go that's my endorsement. Hey baby, what's happened? I'm with someone. Aren't we all? Want to dance? 